What can I say about them? In color, they were not white or black, and certainly bore no intermediate color. They were far from dark, and anything but bright, but strange to say it was not their unprecedented hue that took most of my attention. They had another quality that made me watch them, wild-eyed, dry-throated, and with no breathing. I can make no attempt to describe this quality. It took me hours of thought long afterwards to realize why these articles were astonishing. They lacked an essential property of all known objects. I cannot call it shape or configuration, since shapelessness is not what I refer to at all. I can only say that these objects, not one of which resembled the other, were of no known dimensions. They were not square, or rectangular, or circular, or simply irregularly shaped, nor could it be said that their endless variety was due to dimensional dissimilarities. Simply their appearance, if even that word is not inadmissible, was not understood by the eye, and was in any event indescribable. That is enough to say. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to The Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Peachy. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Welcome back, listeners. We're glad to have you with us. Before we get started tonight, as always, a few items of business. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Reader's K. You can send us an email with any questions or comments at thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. You can find the pod on Apple, on Spotify, on most major podcast networks. Feel free to leave us a rating and a review. And as always, tell a friend about the pod. Spread the word far and wide. We're back tonight with my final pick of the season three, The Name of the Rose. My pick for the mirth cycle, which is Flan O'Brien's The Third Policeman. As always, I'm going to give you a little bit of a plot summary, and then I'm just going to launch right into telling you about why I picked this book for this podcast, and then we're going to kind of throw it out and start talking about it. So The Third Policeman is the story of a man living in Ireland. He becomes an orphan, and together with the sort of farmhand who works his parents' farm, he decides to kill an old man named Mathers and steal his money, and the... the, um, narrator is doing this so that he will have money to then write elaborate commentaries on the work of a man named DeSelby, who's sort of a crackpot philosopher. We'll talk about him later. But they they kill Mathers, they wait a while, and then he goes to retrieve the cash box when all's clear. And uh, from that point on, the story takes a strange turn. He finds himself in a kind of unknown part of the country looking for this cash box. He stumbles upon a police station wherein are three policemen, Policeman McCruskin, Sergeant Pluck, and a mysterious third policeman named Fox, who never seems to be around. But while he's in this police station, he begins to experience uh, the weird ideas and theories of these different policemen, which include an atomic theory, which suggests that 
atoms, when they are in contact with each other, trade places. And so over time, for example, humans become bicycles and bicycles become humans. He discovers a chamber that seems to contain eternity within it um, and many other wonderful, fantastic uh, things along the way. By the end of the book, he's been accused of a murder that they know he didn't commit, but they have to pin it on somebody. He's going to be hanged. He manages to escape, and when he does so, he meets the mysterious third policeman, Fox, who reveals a little bit about everything that's been going on in this strange, bizarre world. He finally then gets back to his own house and discovers John, the farmhand, living there with his whole family, and it's about 20 years later. Uh, and what you learn, no spoiler, well, this is a spoiler, sorry, spoilers for an almost 100-year-old book at this point, but you discover that the narrator has, in fact, since the point when he went to get the cash box, been dead. He was killed by his friend John, uh, murdered for the money, and he's been living in a sort of hell ever since then. And the book ends in a sort of cyclical move with he and John rediscovering the police station all over again. So that's the, the, the basic plot of the book, although it's much more twisted and bizarre than that which we'll get into. Just a few words about why I chose this book. First and foremost, I chose it because this is a this is a cycle about mirth, about comedy, and I think this is an incredibly funny book in its own dark way. Flan O'Brien, um, a.k.a. Brian O'Nolan, a.k.a. Miles Nagopoline, was an Irish writer following in the footsteps of James Joyce, often unhappily, but a kind of screamingly funny writer in a lot of ways. I think um, one of his other books, a book he wrote in Irish called The Poor Mouth, is I think maybe one of the three or four funniest books I've ever read. This book's maybe not quite that funny, but it's also still very, very, very amusing. But also, I think it's a book that fits well with, in the context of our season, for, for a number of reasons. It's a book that features sort of commentary on philosophical texts like our previous book, Sartor Resartus, did, and like The Name of the Rose did. It's a, it's a sort of a proto-postmodern work in some ways. Uh, Flann O'Brien is, is an author who sort of paves the way for certain postmodern writers, including somebody like Umberto Eco. And the book itself has a sort of interesting history that I think plays off nicely with The Name of the Rose's idea of a, of a lost book. Just a quick sort of biographical aside here. So, so Flann O'Brien did not have much luck as a novelist in his own lifetime. He, his first book, At Swim Two Birds, didn't do very well, even though it's now acclaimed as a sort of masterpiece. He wrote The Third Policeman as his second novel. No one wanted to publish it. He hid it away, claimed he had lost it for 20 years. And then he ends up reworking parts of it into his final book, The Dalkey Archive, in some different ways. But the book itself, The Third Policeman, was not published until after his death. And so it's, it is itself a sort of lost work, like Aristotle's second book of the comedy. And I think these days, many people at least would strongly consider Third Policeman to be his finest book, his masterwork. And some people might say At Swim Two Birds, but it's a book with a lot of renown, but in his own lifetime, he never saw the fruits of that. So I think it's an interesting book for those reasons. And also a book that's very in touch with just other parts of the world of philosophy and theology and physics and some strange ways. So a book that I thought would be really fun to talk about with the two of you and maybe fun to listen along for some of our listeners. Um, I'm going to throw it over to, to either of you just to, to kind of gauge initial reactions, see what you thought, what you want to talk about within the forms and structures of this book, and then we'll just kind of go from there. Well, you said a few words that really bring a lot of different things to mind for me. You you used the word weird to describe part of this book, and I think that there's 
some element of the capital W weird going on here, um, which is part of why I really liked it. Not necessarily self-consciously in that tradition, but I'm just one, I would want to ask both of you what the genre of this book is. Cause if someone hasn't read it, it's the plot uh, was excellently summarized by Soren, but nevertheless, the genre is so off putting in a certain way that that plot doesn't necessarily give you a total sense of what the reading experience is here. My book uh, is blurred with the sense that it's like um, Alice in Wonderland in some ways. And I think that's somewhat accurate. And to me, the I would say like the genre or something, it's aligned with the weird. I guess it's fantasy, but in the sense of like, not like epic fantasy, which I almost always detest, <laughs> where we have to find the glowy thing or something and before the big bad somebody gets it oh no instead we're kind of on this like metaphysical odyssey or something or ontological pilgrimage or something trying to find out what is in fact real as we go towards some end i don't know i'm just curious how you all thought of like the genre of this book i mean i'll jump in and first i'll answer soren's prompt and say that my reaction is also one of admiration i really enjoyed reading this and in part because it is it's not just funny it also brings you to these moments of kind of terror, I guess, or vague dread, maybe it would be better. There's an explicit description that the policemen are these sort of large, horrible, and sometimes horrifying beings. But just there's this sense throughout of like, my reality is coming apart. And um, my sense of things, including myself, is kind of vibrating at weird frequencies and, and coming apart. Um, and it kind of takes us away from the stuff that we've been reading in the mystery genre. And even with Shutter Rosartis, there's not a sense of realism in the same way. And so to answer Carl's question, I don't know what we would call it because it precedes capital A absurdist works, right? But it has that flavor and it reminds me a lot of, uh, forgive me, listener, reminds me a lot of Roman Polanski's cul-de-sac which is a great weird movie where these two gangsters pursue this couple or well, they're fleeing and they find this couple in like a castle on a seashore and they, they stay with them. It's, and it's just truly bizarre and description can't really capture it in the same way description can't capture uh, this novel. But both of them, I feel also speak to maybe Carl has a thought on this too, to like Harold Pinter, that there's sort of always an attempt to in the characters discussions to like, get at something that's not really something like it's impossible to tell what's being sought by these people in their discussions. And for that reason, it's compelling to me because it still coheres as like a world. Like you feel like there's something here and there is in this book. And we'll talk a lot about that. Yeah. Can I riff in several different directions here? Cause these are some great thoughts you all are bringing us to. And Carl, I'm really glad you raised this question of genre with this book. I have a blurb on the back of mine. I have the sort of complete novels of Flann O'Brien here, but this is specifically about the third policeman from the, the author, Charles Baxter. He says the third policeman is the funniest book ever written and the scariest, which kind of nicely captures the book's strange um, sort of genre territory. It is somewhat of a, almost like a ghost story in some ways, kind of literally by the end, it's become a ghost story. I think you're right, Carl, or the, the blurber is right to suggest there's something of Alice in Wonderland about it, for sure, this sort of fantastical journey element. 
The one genre that I think is very pertinent that we haven't talked about yet is science fiction, right? It's a sort of weird blending of sci-fi and fantasy. By the end, you discover, at least you think you discover, right, that what's been making all these weird things happen is this element called omnium. And so it it takes on this sci-fi flavor, like the narrator dreams of controlling the world basically through omnium. And so there's that sci-fi element to it, but at the same time, it's sort of a metaphysical fantasy. And then, of course, you don't want to undersell the comic elements of it. And and a lot of, you know, O'Brien himself has these roots in this sort of, I would say, slightly absurdist Irish comic tradition, right? And so he's he's riffing on these things. Like, he's got a serious story going on, but he's also trying to get his jokes in as well. So you have all these different these different elements swirling around all at once. So I, I think that's a really fascinating question, like, where do we pin this down? It's kind of everything all at once, which is part of, I think, the appeal of it, at least to, to people who like that sort of thing, like we do. This might be a good point to kind of launch into one thing that, that I was thinking about talking about, because you brought us there, Friedrich, when you're talking about comparing it to somebody like Harold Pinter, which I think is a good point of comparison. If you've never read the plays of Harold Pinter, go read them, The Birthday Party, things like that, where it's people who are struggling to find out, sort of get to a a sense of meaning to something. O'Brien's one of O'Brien's main comic techniques that he explicitly talks about is the idea of sort of blankness or absence. Um, he said at, at one point he said he has a wonderful quote. And he says like the funniest thing in the world to me is just complete nullity, just a full day of nothingness. And that is sort of one of the comic methods that's being used here, a sense of nullity, but. Also, at the sort of philosophical level, a sense of, I would almost call it like apophatic conversations because people are trying to figure something out and they're doing it only through a negative means. And maybe maybe I'll let the listener know what I'm talking about here by taking us to a, a particularly delicious example of this. The, there are probably five to ten of these sorts of conversations sprinkled throughout the book. I'm going to take you to one that takes place between the narrator and... Uh, one of the policemen, they're trying to figure out the narrator's name. He's forgotten his name. And so they're trying to ask him about this. And here's what they say. Are you completely doubtless that you are nameless? He asked. Positively certain. Would it be Mick Berry? No. Charlemagne O'Keefe? No. Sir Justin Spens? Not that. Kimberly? No. Bernard Fan? No. Joseph Poe or Nolan? No. One of the Garvins or the Moynihans? Not them. Rosencrantz O'Dowd? No. Would it be O'Benson? Not O'Benson. The Quigleys, the Mulroonies, or the Hooneman? No. The Hardyman or the Merriman? Not them. Peter Dundee? No. Scrutch? No. Lord Brad? Not him. The O'Grownies, the O'Rortes, or the Finneys? No. That is an amazing piece of denial and denunciation, he said. He passed the red cloth over his face again to reduce the moisture. An astonishing parade of nullity, he added. And so it goes on actually past that but you have you get this example right (laughs) o'brien loves these lists these long lists of things and this is sort of a modernist technique in some ways but in this book these lists are so often take the form of a series of negations is it this no is it this no is it this no right there and a lot of them have to do with words or names right Um, what's the definition of this word is it this thing no is it this other thing is it no right there's all of these workings around and you never get to a definite answer you never learn what the narrator's name is in this his his soul by the way has a name it's joe um but he himself doesn't seem to have a name and so i'm wondering what you all make of this sort of technique of nullity or whatever we might want to call it that's playing throughout the book to go back to pinter and agree with you both that there is something pinteresque here of that humor and terror 
are kind of blurred in really interesting ways in a lot of Pinter and in a lot of this. Does negation, buildups of negation, give us meaning? It borders between humor and terror. It might be the only way sometimes to get meaning as we think back to uh, like Arthur Conan Doyle or somebody where empirically speaking, there are only so many options. And by crossing off enough uh, wrong ways of going about things, we might get to something true or something that will find a way out. Um, or for Doyle, you know, uh, for Holmes, who the killer is, um, that kind of empirical search for truth. But in this kind of surrealistic landscape, perhaps we're just going to keep going on and there's going to be an infinite number of boxes within a box. So we'll never uh, whittle the wrong answers down and find the right one. What if that process doesn't really work? Similarly, what if by negating things, we don't seem to ever get any closer? That's where the, the humor or the terror, depending, I guess, on your personal feelings on the matter, bleeds one from the other. So I think that's a really interesting technique that goes on throughout the book. And it's not just a way of building humor with ridiculous names in this moment, uh, especially for a person who has multiple pseudonyms, but also as a way of saying, like, where does the reality get cut down and stop? Or can we just kind of keep cutting and cutting infinitely? Yeah, I like what you're saying. And that makes sense to me as a reader that it's it's a world where, yeah, you're trying to cut away at things to get to what's there. And sometimes you just keep cutting and cutting and cutting and you're never going to get there. There's nothing there. And, and this book, it's cyclical, right? So it's just never going to end either. At other instances, people have the answer. And yet the person asking chooses to ask indirectly. And instead of just saying, like, just tell me what's your name? Just tell me what's the definition of a bull bull. Just tell me why you came to the police station. They continue to ask those absurd questions, getting more and more out there with their suggested answers. Is it this? Could it be that? Knowing that the other person, if they asked them directly, would have the answer. And I feel like there's something to that in his novelistic style, that there's a circling of things and never a direct approach to things. It's not that someone knows something and we can just ask them, but there has to be that I don't even know what I'm trying to get at, really, and I don't know if maybe that's that tells us something about the reading of this book and what it's like to read it, but there's a this sense of you circle things and you go around them and you kind of approach them at an angle, but you never really get to know them, and his fiction seems to be like, if you want to get to something, you can't just go write a treatise on it like to Selby because you'll end up writing these ridiculous things that have no bearing on reality. Instead, you have to approach them from this angle, and only by approaching them that way will you kind of catch a glimpse of something real or something that feels real that seems right to me uh, kind of what both of you are saying i think you're right carl to suggest that one of the purposes of nullity is to bring us to that razor's edge between comedy and terror because for o'brien blankness is extremely funny and it is right the sort of the deadpan humor but we have even in that word you know the idea of deadness in it there's something terrifying about that blankness as well. And I think, Friedrich, you're absolutely right to also suggest that for whatever reason, O'Brien feels like he has to be indirect about what he's doing. And the, you know, the characters within the book are doing that as well. At one point, one character says to him, um, to the narrator, right, like, I've learned in life don't answer questions, right? Don't don't give away the answers that you have. You have to keep them for yourself. You have to basically like work around it, right? So I'm not going to give you direct answers. Don't give direct answers to other people. 
I don't exactly know why that is working within the system of the book, but it's certainly there, that idea of indirectness. There's also something of the idea of like a certain expectation that maybe then goes awry about what what matters or a sense of shared values, we might say. Uh, I'm thinking here, of course, when he first gets to the police station both times, time one and time two, the, the policemen say to him, is it about a bicycle, right? Because they assume he's come because his bicycle has been stolen or some part of his bicycle has been stolen, which we find out over the course of the book is the policemen themselves stealing everybody's bicycles so that people don't turn into their bicycles. But there's a sense in which the policemen are very much expecting the only reason you would be here is because your bicycle got stolen. And he's there for some completely other reason. And in fact, he has to make up a reason because he doesn't want to say, I'm here to get this cash box for this guy I killed. Right. So he claims to have a lost watch. Right. But there's all this indirectness going on where people can't seem to be able to communicate with each other because they just have radically different understandings of what's going on in this world. And because of that, they can't really talk to each other. They can only sort of talk past each other in these weird circumlocutions. There's a sort of DeSelbian example of this. There are actually many that maybe can help us. I feel like a joy in reading this book is that you can, when you're talking about it, like you can theorize and come up with ideas about what it, <laughs> what it's going on inside of it, but it's hard, right? One of the DeSelbian ideas in here is that, and one of his most famous, according to the narrator, is his phrase, a journey is a hallucination. And the reason is because it's like a Zeno's paradox thing. <laughs> like you're just always still. And in any movement that you're making is just an illusion. You're always in a state of rest. And the proof of that is in photography. And that every time you see someone in a photograph, they're at rest. Uh, and so the idea that you are in motion is ridiculous. And then in the footnote, which there are many footnotes in this, it says that he had examined like a film strip or a cinematograph and <laughs> had misunderstood the concept. Had <laughs> just been looking at it picture by picture and thinking like this is tedious and boring who would ever want to read this <laughs> but to his like project as a fiction writer i think that's interesting and funny that it's like what are we doing when we're putting together like these point a to point b stories of cause and effect what is it telling us about our world and what is the realistic approach telling us and instead if we're thinking really about like the moment or the feeling that we're having at the moment and we're just imagining that in every moment, every person is at rest and movement is an illusion. Like maybe that does get us somewhere. Like, you know, all these DeSelby passages are, are sort of like exercises in asking you to think about things differently and to jar you out of, not in like a, you know, think critically and jar you out of your world uh, educational way, but um, like to jar you really out of the way you approach your thinking. <laughs> does that make sense? I love that because the book itself, and it's easy to miss if, if you're not looking for it, the book itself begins one of the epigrams is from DeSelby. It's just a fake a fake quote that O'Brien's made up here from DeSelby. And it says, Human existence being an hallucination containing in itself the secondary hallucinations of day and night, the latter an insanitary condition of the atmosphere due to accretions of black air, it ill becomes any man of sense to be concerned at the illusory approach of the supreme hallucination known as death. And so that idea of a hallucinatory existence is running through this book. And I love that you're bringing us there, Friedrich, to this DeSelbian notion that like every single point in your life is just this sort of discrete event and there's no connection with what happens next. And he's like always talking about like, 
oh, you know, like falling asleep is just like a fainting fit that you get, right? And like, oh, there's all this, there's no logic to what's going on and everything is just sort of happening one little bit at a time. And I think that that's, I don't know if the book itself embraces that totally, but you're right that it wants us to think about it in that sense, right? He wants us to contemplate the possibility that our lives don't have some sort of totalitous meaning, but are instead these merely a compilation of discrete events. I agree. I don't know that I do agree. <laughs> I uh, I think Joe might disagree, the soul. And, yeah, he's skeptical. Yeah. And I think we're supposed to take DeSelby as being a bit ridiculous in, oh, some, definitely. in some way. And not just as like a Parmenides who is... You know, Zeno is Parmenides' is arch defender. There is only the one, there's only the all, and therefore it cannot move of itself. There's something going on there, and then Soren, who's more of a a true knower of all things, O'Brien, will tell me if I'm totally way off on this attempt here to link us all the way back to the philosopher who also was a opponent of Parmenides, Aristotle, and his lost book, The Third Policeman and The Third Man Argument. In the title here, there is The Third Man, and this being Aristotle's argument against the Platonic theory of the forms, whereby if you have greatness and you have man, then you need a form that connects them or something. So you need a third thing just to understand two things therefore ad infinitum forms only beget more forms and we never really understand anything through forms and that sense of infinite cutting to go back to what we were talking about before is there in the the wonderful gadget i forget exactly what it is that opens up to another perfect replica that fits right inside it and another and another and another in one of the amazing revelations of the book and also in the journey that keeps repeating endlessly, we learn at the end of the book, the sense that endlessness enervates or takes away meaning in some in some sense. Is that fair to say that maybe O'Brien is intending a sort of Aristotelian critique there in some way? And maybe we're back finding something lost of Aristotle's in this book. That's a really fascinating suggestion, Carl. I haven't thought about that. I mean, O'Brien certainly was steeped in the tradition of learning that was very friendly to Aristotle. You know, he had a good, you know, Irish Catholic education and so grew up in the world of Thomism, you know, which is to an extent Aristotelian, to a large extent Aristotelian. So I think I think there's something to that for sure that there is <laughs> A, a critique of maybe the absurdity, absurdity that happens when you keep multiplying these forms. I think that, yeah, I, de I definitely think there's something to that. I do also think, again, again, and this is where maybe like the science or the science fiction is meeting the theology or the, the fantasy and the, all these elements are coming together. Um, O'Brien did have a real interest in sort of quantum physics as it's emerging. You know, he's writing this in 1938 or so. So you have sort of the new world of physics that people like Einstein have brought about. So, so I think he's very fascinated in that, in sort of fluctuating ideas of eternity and to what extent there might be 
endless divisibility of things down to the atomic level. Certainly that's another big, you know, atomic theory coming in. But he's also attuned to the potential absurdities of that, right? So I think he he, he kind of wants to have it both ways, right? You want to have this, he wants to have this real exploration of these sort of big ideas, but then also wants to poke a little bit of fun at them and say, like, look at how absurd this gets so so very quickly. So I think you're right. I think there's something of that critique going on, but then also a real maybe attraction or fascination on his part to those ideas. So I, I don't know. I think it's maybe ambivalent. I'm thinking about the moment maybe where they lose the smallest box and he's like, now you got to go look for it. So, okay, so just to set up here, we alluded to it but didn't specify Policeman McCruskin makes these these impossible objects, we might call them. So he's got a lance that gets infinitely thin as it goes along, right? Um, and he's like, oh, you thought I poked you with it, but actually the poking point's like way past you already. It already went through you and you just didn't feel it, right? <laughs> so he's got these boxes and they're perfectly made and each one fits inside of each other perfectly. And he just keeps going and there's like hundreds of these boxes. You can't see them because they're so infinitely small. <laughs> and then at one point they lose one of them and he's like, you got to find it and pick it up. And the other, the um, pluck is like, well, we're going to fool him, right? And they're like, oh, we found it. And he got brought it back and he plays McCruskin turns to the narrator and he says, you know, he thought he was fooling me, but actually he accidentally found it while he was, <laughs> while he was pretending <laughs> that he found it, right? So that, that's that wonderful moment of that tension, right, coming out. Like, is this absurd or, or is it there's something real going on here? I think that's a really, you know, kind of productive tension for the book itself. I mean, it's the old physics, the new physics, and Plato and Aristotle. They're all, you know, debating this, like, what is the criterion of reality or the atom, the undivisible thing? And O'Brien seems to be saying, like, we've never really known. <laughs> We've had ideas about it, but, uh, you know, people just kind of stopped looking and it's a, it's a book about like the importance of looking and the different ways of looking, I guess. And the, the reason why you're looking is more important than the thing you're looking for, um, for the narrator. It seems, it seems to me, and to go back to one of Soren's points and why it doesn't seem like we are just in a kind of DeSelbian world of absurdity. Uh, it does seem like there's kind of almost a Catholic lesson about morality in the novel. And so that, to me, sucks me way out of a total absurdity for the book. There is a moral lesson to the search, even though the search is one where it's impossible for it to end in a lot of um, real ways. And so I, I kind of like to see what both of you make of that. I mean, yeah, that's the punishment is is the book right for him like he kills someone early on even the early parts though there's like this flavor which is what drew me into to the reading like there's flavor of weird capital w weird going on with like the competing porters that get you more and more drunk but uh yeah there's that sense there's that hard like you said at the end lesson about he murdered someone and now he's confined to eternal punishment and the guy who murdered so him in turn has like his scourge seeing the ghost moment and uh and dies of fright and goes with him to hell and they're just doomed to repeat this endlessly but i think to say that it's just reduced to that lesson for me is i don't know it's unsatisfying because i want to buy into that absurd world because it's the book it's the whole book you know and it's bookended by the lesson of don't murder i guess um which is i'm not saying that's the lesson but um (laughs) by this sort of moral punishment thing 
But like, why then are we going through as readers into this world? And I feel like there is like, there's stuff at play here that's interesting. Like we're talking about physics and the new physics that's going on. And I feel like part of what he's interested in is, is looking at these hyper tiny invisible reproductions and new elements of things that, re, that can, you know, it's sort of like alchemy almost to him. And Carl, you were kind of saying this and asking like, what does this tell us then about like our existence really? Okay, we know that we can divide something further and further and smaller and smaller. But like, where does that take us as human beings, uh, as intellectuals? And it doesn't seem to take us anywhere. And so what is he looking for? And I think another flavor that is in here is the flavor of like old Irish mythology, like Finn McCool creation type stuff, where a hero type stuff, I should say, where it's like, why did uh, the giant causeway in Northern Ireland get created? It's because this legendary figure went and fought a giant and blah, 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 stuff happened, right? And for, I feel like Flan O'Brien is type of, the type of person who would say like, that explanation to me, like gives me as much, I don't know, intellectual or metaphysical excitement as like the explanations of the new physics, like they're coming at, does this make sense to either of you? I know I'm, I'm kind of circling as well. I see what you're saying, I think, but to me, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Like, I'm not trying to say one topples the other or something, but it's the absurdity and the morality, they have to be linked in some way. And in a mythological or like a new physical sense, it's like an, it's like an observer effects, like in physics, the observer effect or whatever, where, you know, by observing you affect the result. It seems like that is in the book, what reality is and morally for O'Brien, what reality is in a way too. It's like a, it's like a slightly different take on karma or what does Simone Veil call it? Like metaxis or something. Um, this sense that like good and evil are like, if you take like a piece of paper and like wet part of it, the other half is connected to the, the, the non-wet part and the wet part are, they're pushing each other in some way. They're connected just by that line. That's kind of what's happening. What propels them on this journey is the narrator's inability to kind of understand the effects he's had until he can finally observe them everywhere and realize that they are himself. Um, it's something kind of like that, but I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense either. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that I'm, I'm liking what both of you are kind of bringing us to. And I agree with Friedrich that it's kind of has to be halting as we go. Cause it's, it's, it's hard to kind of wrap around in some ways, but I, I want to think about this in maybe in one slightly different way, which is, is a quasi like almost Augustinian account of curiosity as a sin and not in the sense of like, Ooh, I'm curious about something. Right. But of what Augustine would call like the libido dominandis, the desire to dominate over something. Augustine calls curiosity, like part of the, basically part of the sin of pride It's the future oriented part of pride, because it's not about, He's not talking about like, I want to know the answer to something. I'm going to get the answer. But it's like, I want to know, I want to push beyond the boundaries of knowledge and find something in order to sort of dominate over it. And I think that that seems to be the narrator's problem. He says at the very beginning of the book, he's talking about his school days, that he gets a copy of one of DeSelby's books, Golden Hours, which is a delightful name for a book, in this context. And he steals it when he has to go home. And he says, perhaps it is important in the story I am going to tell to remember that it was for De Selby I committed my first serious sin. It was for him that I committed my greatest sin. 
And so then the narrator, more so than somebody like John, who's motivated by pretty much just pure greed, right? The narrator is is motivated by this desire to dominate over the world that he's in. And he finds in DeSelby a sort of key, a mythological key to explaining the world, the sausage-shaped world that we're in with its accretions of black air. DeSelby's method is a method of domination. It's not a method of explanation, but it's a method of domination over the world. And he absorbs that and takes that lesson and then ends up in a sort of hell of his own making where he is trying again to dominate. And that's the sort of temptation that's presented to him at the end by policeman fox when he says here you go here's some omnium 4.2 ounces of omnium here and he's like yes now i'm gonna get everything i want but he's thwarted in that at every turn right originally he goes to to the eternity mine or whatever you want to call it with the other two policemen and he's like oh yeah i can get whatever i want well give me these bags and bags of gold and they're like well only problem, you can't. You have to weigh exactly the same amount when you leave as you did when you came in, and so you can't take all this stuff with you. He's continually thwarted in that sense of libido dominandis. And, and so I'm kind of fascinated by this question of how the morality fits in with the sort of quest for knowledge. And I think what O'Brien wants to say in some ways, and again, not, not in a trite moralistic way, is if you push too far and you go beyond the boundaries of what is needful for you, the world is going to suffer because of it, and you are going to suffer because of it. And this is obviously written before the atomic bomb, but it's a, it's a sort of almost, in that sense, an eerie warning against something like the atomic bomb, right? Where the push for, the desire for domination through something like science then comes and bites us in the ass. I'm interested in this line of thinking, and just to like get my own brain going, I want to cite another example where you're talking about. One is with the DeSelby world, you know, it's interesting that you said that's the first thing that, you know, his first crime is stealing the DeSelbian uh, book because he finds in that world not just this bizarre thinker and his myriad theories that seem to explain things that uh, no one else understands, but he also gets the petty infighting of this scholastic world of commentators who are <laughs> like Dugar Bandier and Hatch John and whoever else uh, who are not only fighting about what to Selby really meant or what to Selby really wrote, but also pseudonymously producing their own forgeries and their own inscrutable texts about and in the voice of or in imitation of to Selby. It's this whole world that he's going to say, like, I'm going to come and make my mark on, right? Um, and I can produce the real meaning. And so to your point, that's that makes sense, I think, in, in your reading, Soren. Another maybe really more pointed moment of curiosity in the sense you mean coming to be his downfalls when he's back at the house toward the end where Mathers lived to search for the cash box and he sees that light and he's like a moth drawn to this flame in the window and he needs to see who's in there and he finally convinces himself to leave the house without seeing the light and he goes out and he walks out and he's relieved and then he turns and sees the light and he can't help it so he needs to like throw a stone through the window <laughs> which draws the final the third policeman fox down upon him and sort of leads to the end uh and the the climax of the story that in that case it's definitely curiosity that kills him i think what's interesting about that is that we're in this indescribable world then and you're saying then that the punishment isn't just like we're bookended with this immoral act and then the punishment revealed at the end but that the punishment itself is like an attempt to say like you're sin 
of trying to dominate through knowledge is punished by a world that's never going to satisfy that, like that you can never attain real knowledge in this place. And it's sort of as a corollary or as a, I should say just a comparison point between like this world and ours that like the lesson I think you're saying is that you can't, are you saying, I'm asking you, Soren, now, are you saying that the lesson is like, there's a limit to no ability or is it about use of knowledge to dominate? Augustine, I think that's what you're saying it's about, but in this book. I think it's, I think it's both of those things that the attempt to, to push beyond the noble limits of the world will drive you sort of mad, right? Is one thing. And then also the, the attempt to sort of dominate the world by mechanical means or technological means is going to then lead to some very bad things. I mean, I do like comparing it to the atomic stuff too, that there's this third policeman who's manipulating things with Omnium throughout and having these negative effects on the other policemen that have sort of driven their need to go back and measure the, the levers or whatever, or take the measurements every few uh, hours or something like that, that there is this sense of like things happening here have an effect on things happening elsewhere. And you, the narrator need to know that. And you're going to learn a harsh lesson because of it. I think Soren is really onto something with the, the Augustine. It reminds me of this passage towards the end. He sobbed convulsively where he lay and began to cry and mutter things disjointedly like a man raving at the door of death. It was about me. He told me to keep away. He said I was not there. He said I was dead. He said that what he had put under the boards in the big house was not the black box, but a mine, a bomb. And I think that's kind of a telling pun there. The MacGuffin, the thing he's been looking for all along to have his dominance, his mastery, his, his pleasure, is a mine. It's just a a thing to be made his in order for him to dominate or feel good. <laughs> and it's that thing which killed him a long time ago, and he has not realized it until this moment. We could think here about like the soul of Elon Musk or something. But I don't know whether the the moral is necessarily that that is that Augustinian or if it's just that then you are sort of fated or doomed to this confusion of not knowing the difference between reality and the reality that your will has created and being totally incapable of seeing how deeply fallible that portion of reality is and how bizarre and I guess compared to, you know, everyone's reality, how fallible and how much more sort of quickly it can crumble than the reality of everyone. I think that that point then pairs nicely with something that Friedrich was alluding to before, which is the kind of wonderful, one of the wonderful structural things about this book is there are these huge footnotes where we just delve into the world of DeSelby and then DeSelby commentary. There are these rival commentators on his life and works, Hatchjaw, these, all these various people who are arguing back and forth about what could this possibly mean in this moment? Like, what did he mean when he said that night is just an accretion of black air from volcanoes, right? Or like, and, and all these people are constantly trying to sort of rescue his reputation from himself. And, and there's all this arguing going on and you call it sort of this petty infighting here that of course is a parody of 
academia really right it's just this this parody of delving too deeply into the the system or theories that you have devised for yourself and i think that's that then brings us nicely to your point carl which is like maybe for this narrator at least the hell that he is in is this inability to distinguish what is really there from this reality of his own making and there's something about making books as a way of avoiding reality as well absolutely i think that's really really good i want to bring us somewhat far afield but i'll connect it briefly so to go back to the discussion of that started this the discussion of that sort of circular conversation nullity and refusal to answer or at least to give the answer if you know it when we really enter the absurdist world that makes up the bulk of this book it's when he reaches for the cash box and it it's not there and we have old mather's ghost and old mather's ghost is someone who says that he is someone who uh doesn't answer people's questions and uh when he's asked to explain why he says it's because he discovered that everything you do is in response to a request or a suggestion made to you by some other party either inside you or outside some of these suggestions are good and praiseworthy and some of them are undoubtedly delightful but the majority of them are definitely bad and are pretty considerable sins as sins go do you understand me perfectly i would say that the bad ones outnumber the good ones by three to one six to one if you ask me i therefore decided to say no henceforth to every suggestion request or inquiry whether inward or outward and then he says it's like the only way that he could guarantee that he wouldn't be like driven to sin by other people or something like that okay so throwing that on the table the next then the thing that really brings us into the weirdness of this book is as he's explaining his beliefs he starts talking about the policeman and how these policemen would give him a gift every year, which was these gowns of the color of the wind that was prevailing on the day they were born. And they would accrue as you grew. You would continue to get them and wear them, and you would never take them off. And the colors would thicken, and eventually they turn black, uh, which is the day that you die. So if you're born on a day with the prevailing wind that's like yellow, that's better, right, than if you're born on one that's purple. So we read Sartor Sardis. Following my circular logic here, we're in the world of clothes. We're in the world of refusing outside suggestions and refusing outside advice because it drives you to sin. Is there something here to that Carlylean world where we're inheriting things, we're being given things, and we're asked to do things? And the Mather's response of just no, especially since he's the policeman at the end, right? He has Mather's bloated face. Is that like made made more hay of than we've given it so far? Does that make sense? Like, does this book seem to be in the world of like Mather's refusal completely of other people's ways of seeing and being? Is that a critique of the selfishness of the narrator? I don't understand. You know, this is a this was like the really puzzling part of the book to me. This clothes gowns imagery. Those two moments are so they're like really beautiful fantasy that start off this book, and I was totally hooked. Same, um, yeah. And I have no theory about them. So I was like, I need to bring them in because they hooked me, but I, I can't explain them. That's good. That's good. I mean, I mean, obviously that's one circle, the sort of everlasting no of Mathers, the sort of inverse of Jim Carrey's amazing movie, <laughs> Yes Man, where he says yes to everything for a year. Um, but we learned right away that he, there's just a different way of phrasing things such that you can get whatever you want from Mathers. <laughs> and he becomes kind of DeSelbian, right? In a sense, like, all these refusals. I really don't know how to connect it to the clothes. 
or what that what that amounts to other than that it's one circle of the everlasting no and another circle of everlasting yay i don't know if it's there but it has to be there because the two circles make a bicycle (laughs) soren tell me about gowns (laughs) i i don't know if i have a good answer for you i i yeah i think i think it's a fascinating moment what i immediately started thinking about and i don't know how to fit these two together so forgive me here but i was thinking about it as somehow the inverse of what the policemen are doing with the people's bicycles in the parish right so i mentioned this briefly earlier but one of the things that policeman mccruskin and sergeant pluck are doing constantly is stealing everybody's bicycles and hiding them and then going on a police investigation and refinding them merely for the purpose of preventing people from spending too much time riding their bicycle because when that happens then the bicycle becomes partly human and you become partly bicycle and things get very confused and there are these very weird edge cases of the law where they like have to hang a bicycle for a crime committed because it was clear that the bicycle did it and not the person and where there was more person in the bicycle now than there was in the person. These weird sort of atomic theories of how, of a, like how does accretion of a person occur or leak out, I guess, in this case? And it's a different, it's different, but it's, I think a, a similar idea here is this accretion of personhood over time through the gowns like an accretion of of meaning that happens over time as you sort of have these gowns put on you every year i don't know i it's hard to say like i think part of what it's getting at is i mean is human is human life or the human soul even is it gathered over time is that why joe only appears in this moment of death i I don't know i mean it's it's weird right I guess I'm trying to work through, like, we've been talking about the ideas, and I'm trying to now work through some images, too, because, like, this book is so, you know, the bicycle stuff with the atomic sort of explanation of how that happens is really funny. But then, like you are saying, there's this idea that they're accreting layers of this birth color that continue throughout your life, and then there's all this emphasis on paint and color that has never been seen before that can drive people mad, and then the policemen themselves are bloated and dis big larger than life scary figures i guess too like with that image of largeness and bigness is in in this book all over the place and i guess like another question would be be like why are they policemen why are they cops they're people who are like they see they're able to see the wind and give you like you were saying like to to make you accrete that same birth moment again and again until what it, it like makes you who you are in some way why are they policemen to add another layer, perhaps, um, <laughs> there's there's something to the effect of the narrator doesn't want to find a policeman because he has these he's racked by guilt and therefore finds them. And part of it to me is also the sense that like the law is an accretion of precedent or something. And so this character going through these different events, what makes a certain thing right or wrong based on the law or or what kind of grounds these laws it's just more infinite layers right there are many different motifs that become infinite layers in in this book i wasn't sure that i I wanted to take us here but now i do carl um, thanks to you there's this wonderful moment i thought instantly of you where they're discussing basically they want to pin this crime that's happened on the narrator and he says, you can't accuse me. I don't have a name. You can't, bl- you can't blame me for this crime. And they say, well, yeah, actually, that's true. But then, you know, if we hang you, 
they won't be able to figure it out anyway. And and so what what instantly that brought to mind, of course, was was um, Agamben's idea of the Homo soccer, who's the person who's outside of the normal boundaries of the law. And that was, I mean, it just came into my mind. And I think that's great. To what extent does the law hold true? And we might say here like natural law or something like that. To what extent does that then dissolve when you're faced with these weird edge cases? And that's sort of this thing that comes up throughout. Again, I kind of mentioned it before. Like you have this weird case where a bicycle gets hanged because it's too much of a human now and it's morally responsible, right? What do you, you know, the law is a series of test cases at the very edge, right? And so that, that, I think that's, that's something that he's pointing us to throughout here as well. And the state of exception, right, we might say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's another one of those, like, like there, we forget that there are all these legal paradoxes everywhere, you know? Like if you pre-pardon somebody um, so that they refuse, they don't get jail time, that's technically an admission of guilt. So there are people who have refuse their pre-pardons because they refuse to ever admit any sort of guilt. So that's totally rendered absurd and it's like thrown in our faces as totally absurd in the book, but it's the same logic that exists in the legal system in our world. Carl, your brand is strong. I thought of you as well when I read that part. <laughs> oh, that makes me that makes me so happy, guys. <laughs> And because I loved this book and I was like so many moments <laughs> in this book, I was loving it. So, Well, this might be a good moment then to, to wrap things up um, so we don't drag our listeners through an endless cycle of um, hellish uh, meditations on this book. But um, I would strongly encourage you to go out, if this is at all piqued your interest, go out, pick up this book, read it. It's, it's not very long. That's another benefit of it. It's barely over 200 pages. Pretty easy to read. Well, no, I would no take that back. Not easy to read, but it is a fun read. It's extremely funny, extremely bizarre. Thank you for listening along with us. Hopefully you've gotten something out of it. We are nearing our own end, at least of season three, listeners. We're going to be back one last time, our very final episode of the season. That's Carl's last pick, a book that I think is going to put a nice little bow on our entire season here, which is John Kennedy Tools, A Confederacy of Dunces, a book written in the 20th century, but very much steeped in the medieval, like the name of the rose, concerned with medieval philosophy and learning. It's a very funny book. I hope you'll join us for that. Until next time, though, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out. Jock scores on the field, speeds down the block. Julie ran a stop sign on her way to the mall. Her dad took her charge cards, and that's not all. Now Rita could do every trick on skates, but bike tricks are more than her family can take. Arthur loves his books, and he's smart in school, too. But when it comes to bikes, he's really got no clue. 
bebop's tough, a really funky dude, but on a bike he needs a change of attitude. 